You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together tonight, Lord. We're so blessed and honored, Father, because of your word and us being able to have the privilege of studying your word. And so, Father, we gather today in the name of Jesus. And you said where two or three are gathered together that you are right here in our midst. And even though, again, Father, we're not in the same place physically, we're in the same place spiritually hooked up to you, hooked up to the Holy Spirit. And we believe for the anointing, Father, to be present, to minister your word, to teach your word, to bring revelation and insight. Father, we believe for each and every one of us to have hearing ears and receptive hearts. And Father, I thank you that because of that, our lives will be different. Our lives will be better. And Father, in obedience, we will not just be hearers of the word, but we will be doers of the word as well. And we thank you for it and believe you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This is uh, week number three in talking about the Sermon on the Mountain. Again, this is an expository study where we're going line by line and working through it. And, um, you know, I believe there are some things that people very often misunderstand about what Jesus was sharing in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're, we're endeavoring to dive into some of these things. Now, a couple of things that I want you to remember, uh, just to remind you, is that from Matthew chapter 5 through the middle of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. So this takes place not long after he's called them and gathered them together. And so he's giving them a crash course and ministering to people and Christian conduct and all of those types of things. And so what you see in the middle of the seventh chapter, though, uh, is, of course, it's all the same sermon, but the multitudes begin to gather and the public begins to gather around. So he begins to tailor his message more towards the multitudes and talking about principles of salvation and so forth. But at, at the first part of this, and, and what we've covered up to this point, is strictly for his disciples. So a lot of the things that you're going to see are going to be towards his disciples. So hopefully, uh, for those of you who weren't with us last week, you were able to uh, listen to the, the podcast and uh, kind of catch up. But we're in verse 23, and we're going to begin there. And I, you know, I hesitate jumping in in verse 23 because it begins with the word therefore. Uh, so I want to encourage you to go back and, and listen to last week so you can find out what the therefore is there for. Okay. So, but let's pick up there in verse 23. Again, Jesus speaking said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, one thing I will say from last week's lesson, and that is this, Jesus uh, is teaching a tremendous amount, particularly in this portion that we're looking at, on the thoughts uh, of your mind, the intents of your heart, and the words that you speak. So a lot of what we talked about last week was having to do with check your heart, check your heart motivation, and uh, you know what what in anything that we do really as believers, we should do it all with a pure heart motivation, loving one another out of a pure heart, and so forth, and so. When Jesus says, uh, therefore, bring your gift, to, if, well, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, deal with it is basically what he's saying. Leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go your way. And the reason that he says this is because, um, truth be told, you know, and, and just make a note of this uh, reference from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel made the statement, and he said this, it is better to obey 
than sacrifice. God is more interested in our heart attitudes and our obedience to him than he is the physical things that we do, our outward manifestation, our outward behavior. So what Jesus is really wanting us to do before you offer the sacrifice is what he's saying, check your heart. And if there is something in your heart against your brother, go and make it right or endeavor to do so to the best of your ability. And uh, that way, uh, your sacrifice, what you're doing is going to have its full potential in that your heart is right. There's nothing in your heart against your brother. And therefore, uh, God will be able to uh, receive your sacrifice. You know, one of the points in this is that, you know, we, we hinder God being able to receive what we offer to him if our heart motivation is not right or if our heart is clouded with something like Jesus is referring to here, unforgiveness, or if somebody has unforgiveness or is bitter against us or something. Now, let me make a little side note to this. If you, and I'm not trying to add to what Jesus said, but if you go to your brother and then he doesn't forgive you and, and respond to you and, and pay attention to the word brother there. So he's not talking about unsaved people. He's talking about saved people. So if you go to that person and you repent and you say, please forgive me for doing you wrong and they choose not to, then the burden is on them. You have done your part and therefore can return and, you know, using this metaphor, offer your sacrifice and it will be right. Your heart attitude is what is the most important thing. So then Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the prison and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And what Jesus is talking about is, uh, and the, it, you know, we have these today just like they did back then, and that is this um, frivolous lawsuits, you know, and especially Christian versus Christian. And, uh, you know, that we should conduct our lives in a way that we're always working not to end up in a situation like this. In other words, what, what God would rather you do if you have a business deal or something that goes awry with another believer, and he would rather you deal with it individually and work it out his way than go the world's way and try and solve it legally. Because here's what Jesus is saying to you in verse 26, when he's saying, assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. When you choose to handle something on your own and go at it a different way than the way God prescribes, then God has no choice but to leave it with you and you handle it on your own without his help. So what Jesus is saying is, is if you choose to go this legal route uh, and, and handle it in the courts and you lose, then you're going to be responsible. Don't come to God and ask God to help you in that situation because you pursued it outside of God's will and his plan. So what God is after is for believers to be able to solve differences in and among each other instead of having to involve a worldly court system in that. Okay, now, um, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, those people really did me wrong in that business deal and so forth and so on. And, and you know, that happens. It really does happen. But Jesus wants us to try and handle it God's way versus trying to handle it in the court of law. Okay, so when we try and do it God's way, we have God's help and God's blessing. But when we, and this is true with anything, when we try and do it outside of God's way, then we are on our own, basically, and we have to deal with the consequences, okay? So in verse 27, and this is a very, very important part of this, verse 27, Jesus said, you have heard uh, that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And of course, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law. He said, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed 
adultery with her. And the key is these three words in his heart. Okay. Let me, well, let me finish this little portion. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is telling us that sin does not begin in the physical action. Sin begins, really it begins in the thought and then becomes a heart situation and then manifests itself in the outward or physical sense. Okay, so, uh, you know, and of course the the law emphasizes that the physical aspect of it, the outward manifestation. And the religious leaders focused on the outward manifestation and outward behavior, not the attitude of the heart. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that um, the sin of the heart is much more serious than the sin of the flesh. You know, I heard it said, and Brother Hagan said this way back when I was in Bible school. He said that God will deal with you in the areas of sins of the heart far quicker than he will sins of the flesh. Not that he tolerates either one, but what I want you to see is, is that it's the, the sins of our flesh are an outworking of what you think in your, in your mind and what you have already plotted to do in your heart. So that is very, very important. Now, Jesus is not condoning by any stretch of the imagination uh, personal physical mutilation. He is not telling you, uh, start plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hands. He's not telling you to do that. Okay, because here's why a one eyed man can lust as well as a two eyed man. A two handed man can get into trouble just as, I mean, a one handed man can get into trouble just as quickly as a one handed man. What Jesus is telling us is a couple of things. Okay, he is telling us that you may have to take some drastic steps in order to eliminate sins of this type in your life. So let's let's back back this up a little bit. Again, he's talking about sins of the mind or your thoughts and sins of the heart, okay? Using uh, you know, lust and those types of things as he is in this particular portion, all of those sins, let me say it to you this way. Adultery does not start in the flesh. It starts in the mind and grows from there. You know, James tells us that sin is conceived when someone is drawn away of their own lust, which really is a strong desire in your mind and will get down in your heart. And that's what causes you problems. But what Jesus is telling us is that you might have to take some drastic steps in order to keep that from taking place. Uh, let me illustrate it for you this way. Let's say God sets you free uh, from a, a habit of, of smoking crack, let's say, just to be an extreme example, okay? Well, in, in, in order to stay free from that and to eliminate that sin from your life, you might have to take some drastic steps like you can't hang around with your other crack-smoking buddies anymore, you can't do things that are going to open the door to that in your life. So you might have to take some drastic steps in order to separate you from the thoughts and intents of the heart that are going to lead to that sin. You know, where the lust problem is concerned, you, you're going to have to separate yourself from, and the world uses this term, but it's a, it's a true term. You're going to have to separate yourself from the triggers that leads you to that, that open the door in that area. And so that's what Jesus is telling us is he literally did not mean pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. He is telling you, take whatever steps are necessary to set, separate yourself and to set yourself apart from that point or, or whatever is causing you the issue. 
The point that Jesus is making is that you must deal with the thoughts and intents of the heart that are behind the sin, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times we, we Christians, we deal with the, the sin issue, and, and, and we should, but we deal with the physical behavior, not the thoughts and heart intent that are behind it. And so what happens is, is it continues the cycle, and we never quite get the victory over that. Look, I've said this before. Let me say it to you this way. Don't address the fruit, address the root that's behind the fruit, and you'll be able to have a better opportunity in overcoming that area that's causing you problems in your life, okay? So that's what Jesus is talking about. So verse uh, 31, and this is where we're getting into uh, a whole nother section, and uh, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about this tonight, and that is this, Matthew 5, 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law. He says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced uh, commits <laughs> adultery. So what I want to do, I want to take some time tonight, and I want to unravel uh, because there's been a whole lot of confusion in the body of Christ regarding those two verses right there and what Jesus was saying. So, you know, there are some denominations and some churches that teach if you are divorced and remarried, you're going to hell. Uh, I'm talking about a Christian, that if you divorce and remarry, you're going to hell because you're caught up in adultery. Some teach that if you get divorced because your spouse was unfaithful, as Jesus indicated, you can never remarry. They, they tell you you can't ever get remarried. And some teach that if you are divorced and remarry, you can never serve in the church in any way, much less be in full-time ministry. I know some denominations that if you're in ministry and um, you know, you're know you a pastor or whatever, and you get divorced by no fault of your own, in other words, you didn't cause the divorce, you still lose your ministry credentials and get kicked out of the ministry. And uh, so I want us to look at this and, uh, you know, unravel a lot of this. You know, there have been small wars fought in the body of Christ about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I, I want you to make a note that the conflicts often arise because of what Jesus taught here in Matthew chapter 5, mm -hmm. Matthew chapter 19, and then what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, all right? And so we're going to look at this for a little bit tonight, and, and uh, you know, you might be good with it. You might totally understand it and be great. I want to equip you so you're able to help people. I'll just share this quick little story. Uh, many years ago, uh, not too long after I had been pastoring, just a couple of years, there was a young lady who came to our church, who came from a denominational church, very sharp young lady. She uh, uh, was a school teacher and, uh, you know, just very talented, very gifted when ministering to children and so forth in the particular denominational church that she went to. Um, her husband ended up having an affair and leaving her, and therefore they got divorced, no fault of her own. And at the time, she was teaching a Sunday school class. Well, when the administration in the church, the leadership in the church found out what had happened to her, they kicked her out of being able to teach uh, Sunday school and then made her have to just basically ride a pew in other words, that she couldn't do anything in the church from that point forward. In other words, there was no hope of her ever being able to do anything in serving in the local church as long as she was part of that denomination. So therefore, that meant from now until Jesus comes or she goes to heaven, that she was going to have to just come to church on Sundays and that's it. That's all she could do. 
And, and I, I mean, when she told me that I had heard about those types of things, but I had never encountered it personally. And so I took her to the word administered her to her, what I'm sharing with you tonight. And she was absolutely floored. And first of all, so totally relieved that, uh, God wasn't mad at her because she had gotten a divorce and that he wasn't going to hold it against her. She could minister in the church and be, serve and be a blessing to people and, and that she had a future. Okay. And that was the biggest thing. And so it was a great relief to her. So we want to look at these things. We want to get into them. And uh, so we're going to jump right into this. So the, the question comes to bear, Jesus says one thing, and we'll look at what Paul says in just a moment, but Jesus says one thing, and Paul somewhat says something different in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So who's right, Jesus or Paul? So we, what we need to do is we need to break this down and we need to look at it. So make a note of this verse. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. I want to read it to you from the Amplified Bible. And, and let me read it to you, and then I'll make a statement. Paul said this to young Timothy. He said, study and be eager and do your utmost to present yourself to God approved, tested by trial, a workman who has no cause to be ashamed, correctly analyzing and accurately dividing, rightly handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. So, the bottom line is this, and what Paul was telling Timothy, don't take the word at face value because somebody else says that's what the word says. Study the word for yourself. And I've told you this many times, just because you're in our church or you're part of this Bible study, do not take what I tell you without studying it out for yourself. You need to have a revelation in your own heart of what God is saying from the word. So, and this is a perfect example, and I'm not knocking her when I said this, but you know, what if early on this young lady that I'm referring to had, <coughs> excuse me, a working knowledge of what the Bible actually said, she could have avoided herself a whole lot of hurt in the sense of uh, she wouldn't have felt so damaged by what this denomination had told her. Uh, she could have made some changes earlier on. And so we need to study and find out what the Bible says for ourselves, okay? No matter who's teaching it, all right? Now, in studying the Bible, and we talked about this before, there's three questions you need to ask yourself. When you're looking at a scripture in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is speaking, and you're looking at a scripture in 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll look at in a few moments, there's three things that you need to ask yourself always, and it would do you good to remember this. Number one, who's doing the speaking? Who is doing the talking? So in Matthew chapter 5, we know this is Jesus speaking. The second thing you need to ask yourself is this, what are they speaking about? What are they speaking about? So in that particular portion of scripture, Jesus is teaching on uh, marriage, divorce, and, and remarriage. And then thirdly, the, the third question you need to ask yourself is this, to whom are they speaking? Who is the audience? Who are they talking to? So, you know, looking at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, obviously the answer to question number one is Jesus is speaking. Number two, what is he talking about? He's talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But number three, who is he speaking to? And that is this. He is speaking to Jews under the Old Testament. Now, you need to understand something about Jesus' ministry. Jesus ministered as a man of God anointed by the Holy Ghost under the old covenant. It's very important that you understand that. Okay. So though you need to understand those three questions. The, the, the second thing that you need to understand is this, that there are three 
types or classes of people that are always being addressed in the Bible. Three different uh, groups of people is a better way to say it, um, that are always being addressed in the Bible, okay? Uh, put your little ribbon thing in, in Matthew chapter 5 and go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Real quick, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says this. Now, again, if you'll read it in its context, Paul is bringing some correction to the Corinthians uh, because some of them were getting offended about foods that they ate and so forth and so on. And uh, it, he, he just had to lay it all out and, and bring some correction. But in verse 32, he says this, and I'm reading from the New King James, give no offense either to the Jews to the Greeks, or you could say to the Gentiles, or to the church of God, or the body of Christ. So in the Bible, God is always talking to one, or or he could be a more than one, but he's always talking to the Jews, the Gentiles, or the church. The Jews, the Gentiles, or the church. So in understanding this, uh, of course, the Jews were God's covenant people who God still loves the Jews today. You know, there are some in the body of Christ that teach that God abandoned the Jews. He left them behind. That's absolutely not the truth. Uh, there's the church, God's family that was bought and paid for through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And then there's the Gentiles. We might call them the heathen people, lost people, people that don't know Christ. Okay. So those three, uh, were, were who are, are the groups that Jesus and the Word of God primarily are ministering to. So in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is teaching there, who is he talking to? He's talking to Jews. He's talking to Jewish people under the Old Testament. He is not talking to Christians under the New Covenant. He's not talking to the body of Christ, Okay. So let's understand that. Now, go back with me to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, I've got to lay out some of these details so that you can clearly understand these things. So Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the Old Testament, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Because um, we're going to see in just a moment that the religious leaders bring up what we're getting ready to read when they're confronting Jesus. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, and I want you to pay attention to this word, and if you want to, you can underline it, uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So let's unpack this for just a second. So let's say there's a husband and wife that are married. The husband detects that there's uncleanness in his wife. He can write her, according to the law, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then if she remarries and her second husband finds the same thing, he can do the same thing and send her away and divorce her there. Okay, so let me lay a little groundwork about this. Again, not trying to bore you with details, but as I often say, pay attention to the details, okay? Okay. So under the Old Testament, 
and this is definitely not the culture that we live in today, but under the Old Testament, a woman seldom had in any choice or input into her husband's choice. In other words, uh, her father very often chose her husband for her. And back then, what would happen is if the man that her husband chose found it favorable to marry her, he basically gave her a dowry or, you know, just to be plain, purchased her from her father. And so then he had a legal right then to marry her. Okay. So if she pleased the man, he kept her. If not, he had a legal right under the law to return her to her father for the purchase price. Now, I know this is this sounds crazy to us in our culture today, but this is the way it works. And by the way, there are still some cultures in the world today that this same thing is still practiced. You'll find this in some Indian cultures. You'll find it in some African cultures that it still is handled this way. All right, so now go over with me to Matthew chapter 19, please. Matthew chapter 19. Somebody says, where are you going with all this? Just hang on, buckle your seatbelts and hang on, okay? Matthew chapter 19. Now, this is later on in Jesus' ministry. So um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of background, Okay. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he had just got given a, another teaching, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him. Now, you have to understand, they are testing him, meaning... They know what the answer should be, all right? So that what is it that they ask him? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, what was the reason that we just read in Deuteronomy 24? Somebody tell me. Uncleanness. Uncleanness, okay? Or infidelity in the marriage, all right? So they knew the answer. What they were wanting to know is what was Jesus' response going to be, okay? So in Matthew 19, Jesus is getting ready to expound on the Mosaic law about marriage and divorce to the Jews. Now, keep in mind, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. He was not giving the Gentiles law that was designed to govern Gentiles, he was speaking to Jews and what was to govern them under the Mosaic law. He was not giving the body of Christ law that was supposed to uh, lead and guide our lives in the church. He is getting ready to simply answer the question that the Pharisees gave him. All right. So what was it that they that he responded? So in verse four, Jesus responds and he said, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, what is he, what is he quoting? He went all the way back to Genesis before the law was ever given. And he said this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So again, Jesus' response was, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, this is what he said. So, and the, the, the answer to this question was rhetorical. Yes, they knew what Genesis said, okay? All right, so then, verse 6, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, then why or why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, you got to keep in mind, the motivation of their heart imposing all of this to Jesus is to trip Jesus up. They're looking for a reason to be able to kill him. I mean, that's just plain and simple. So what they're doing is they're throwing these things at him, trying to get him to trip up so that they can declare that he's a blasphemer. Okay? So... 
So the, again, the question they threw back at him is why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, and I'm going to add this, said that because of the hardness of your hearts, he permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, now this is Jesus, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, what did Jesus just do? He just basically paraphrased for them and answered their question based on what Deuteronomy 24 said. Okay? Now, again, why am I saying this? Because people have taken what that says in verse 9 there and have brought it over into the church age and took an Old Testament law and brought it to the church age and tried to appropriate it and use it against Christians today. So Paul introduced an exception to what Jesus said. All right, so let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Y'all still with me? Yes, sir. All right, hang on. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. Oh, I tell you, um, let, let, let me read verse 7. Uh, for I wish, this is Paul speaking, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What's he talking about? He's talking about people that are married and unmarried. All right? Now, he again, in this... Uh, notice what he said. Pay attention to the details. I wish all men were like me, is what Paul was saying. And uh, basically, because you avoid yourself a lot of challenges or potential challenges if you remain like him. In other words, um, and I can say this, uh, life is a whole lot simpler. I'm not saying better, simpler as a single person than it is when you're married. That's all Paul is saying, okay? So he says, for I wish that all were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God. In other words, for, for Paul to remain single and have no desire to be married that we know of, it's a gift from God. In other words, there's an anointing to be able to do that. It's a grace. That's what that word gift is translated from. In other words, if, if you're called to remain single in ministry or whatever, it takes a grace upon your life to do that. That's what Paul is saying. And so he says, but each one has his own grace from God, one in this manner and another in this. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now, I, I want you to pay attention to what he said. He's not necessarily say, he's not saying marriage is a bad thing. What he's saying is your life is not as complicated because I think any married person would agree that when you enter into a marriage relationship, it's not as simple as it is when you're single. I mean, if you're single, you can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, you can go wherever you want to go. You can live your life the way that you want to live your life. But the moment that you're married, you have another party that now has input to all of those things. So it has a tendency to make a life not as simple. That's all he's saying. Okay. Now let's go on verse nine. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married, I command yet not I, but the Lord. Okay. Stop right there. So Paul is switching gears right here. What he just got through saying is his opinion. Okay. But what he's getting ready to say is from the Lord. So what he's getting ready to say, we can make doctrine out of it. Okay. 
All right, so he says, I command you, but not I, the Lord, a wife is not to, to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, okay, so this is Paul, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, and now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, a husband, whether you say will save your wife? But God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain for all the churches. What is, what is Paul saying to us? Is Paul conflicting with what Jesus said? The answer is no, okay? Again, who is Paul, or, or who's doing the speaking here? Of course, obviously, the Apostle Paul. Who is he talking to? He's talking to believers who are Christians. He is not talking to Jews that are living under the law, all right? Now, uh, and then, you know, the context of what he's talking about is that there were questions that were sent to him by these Gentile Christians about marriage and divorce and so forth. And that's what he is addressing here, okay? Now, uh, you remember, and don't turn there, just, just think with me. We read in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus quoted what, what Genesis says, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay. Now, I want to tell you something and unravel this for you. All right. I've been saying all of that to say this right here. Before Jesus came, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, and now people can be born again it was impossible for a husband and wife to have the kind of marriage that Adam and Eve had, which is what Jesus is quoting here. Okay. Under, I mean, it was just physical because what you had before Christ was two sinners who were dead spiritually coming together and trying to live together and to, uh, you know, live for God and fulfill God's will, plan, and purpose. I'm not saying it was impossible, but it was much, much more difficult, all right? And so what the difference is, two born-again believers, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says this, that we believers have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So what does that mean? That means you and I have a resource to live out of that the Old Testament believers did not. Are you, are you tracking with me? Okay. So from the, in other words, from the time Adam sinned and fell until Jesus came to redeem mankind, man was not able to have a divine marriage. But now that they're born again, the nature of God is on the inside of them. The love of God is on the inside of them, and their hearts are different, and you have, again, resources to live out of. So the question comes to bear, to bear again, who is right, Paul or Jesus? Okay, well, the answer is both are right. Now, not to confuse you, but to... Uh, help you understand this the bible says in second corinthians 3 or second timothy rather 316 that all scripture is given by inspiration of god 
is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Okay? Now, Jesus is referring to the commandment given to the Jews. Paul is referring to the church. Now, somebody tell me, what is the commandment we live under now? Church. Say again. Church. Okay. What mm -hmm. is the commandment that Jesus gave us that we live under now? The love commandment? Is that what you're to love All right. one another? Turn in your Bibles to John 13. John chapter 13. Now, keep in mind, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. Okay? So, the Ten Commandments and all of those, the commandments are valid, but Jesus fulfilled it and gave us a commandment that handles all of it. All right, John 13, verse 34. Jesus, uh, Judy just said it. But John 13, verse 34, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So this law, this commandment that Jesus just gave fulfills all of the Old Testament law, including Deuteronomy 24, which we read earlier. So what Jesus is telling us is the law, the commandment of love, the law of love supersedes and overrides all of the Old Testament law. Make a note of this verse, Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Romans 13 and 10 says this, Paul said this, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, here's the, here's the bottom line and what the difference between what Jesus said and what Paul said. Jesus addressed this as a response to the question that the uh, the religious leaders brought to him, and then he also taught in Matthew chapter 5 under the Old Testament law. Paul addressed it differently because he answered it in the light of the commandment of love. So, you know, very often we hear WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? You remember all the bracelets and things that we had, and, and it was great. But really, the question we should ask is this, what would love do in that situation? What would love do in that situation? So going to Paul's response, okay, if, if, instead of, uh, you know, and again, I can't summarize marriage counseling in one, one phrase, but what I'll say this. Most marriage problems would be resolved if the commandment of love was being obeyed between the two people. Okay, I'm going to say that again because I didn't get too many amens or anything uh, for that, all right? Most marriage problems could, and, and I'll throw this in, most relationship problems among believers can be resolved if the commandment of love is being obeyed. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay. All right. So that being said, Jesus was talking to people in Matthew chapter five that did not have the love of God shed abroad on the inside of their hearts. They didn't have the law of love. They had no capacity to walk in love with each other. And, and so that's why God had to address a lot of the things the way he did under the Old Testament and under the law. But we're not under that law anymore. We're under a single law that fulfills it all, and that is love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. And so most, uh, I, I would venture to say 98, if not more, percent 
of relationship problems, including marriage problems, could be resolved if both, and I'm referring to Christians, if both people were obeying the commandment to love one another, okay? And it's because of our ignorance of what that law entails that we don't know how to do that, okay? So Paul answered the question in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because uh, let's think about it for just a moment. He said this, he said, I tell you what, if, uh, you know, you have a believing spouse, let's say a wife and an unbelieving husband, let's say you have two unbelievers and one gets saved and the other is not yet saved. If the one that is saved will live out of love, then there is great potential for their lifestyle to win the unsaved one. Okay. Now, but he went on to say, if the unbelieving chooses to depart anyway, let them depart. And I'm going to add this, but not because the believer made their life so miserable by nagging on them and chewing on them all the time and yelling at them and making their life just a living, you know, nightmare that they wanted to leave. All right. What I'm saying is the believer should do everything they can to walk in love, to let their lifestyle win that unbeliever. But if that unbeliever still chooses to depart, let him depart. And so doing the believer is not bound to that person, nor are they bound in, in the sense of if they were to remarry, that they're committing adultery. So Paul was bringing it back to the law of love and not the Old Testament law. Okay, have I made sense? Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. So uh, it's very, very important that we understand this. And I'm just going to speak for Spring Hill Church, okay? So I will say this, God is never for divorce, but he is always for divorced people. Okay. I'm going to say that again. God is never for divorce. He would rather it go another direction. But if somebody comes to our church or experiences a divorce, God is always for divorced people. And if, and you know, if we can at our church, and, and I'm sure this is true with a lot of churches, great churches, we will do everything we can to try and lead to reconciliation. But if that is not possible, then if that person remains in our church that experienced the divorce, they're not looked down upon, they're not less than, okay? And their life can still move forward and flourish in the will, plan, and purpose of God, okay? All right? Now, if it's a situation to where the person uh, that chooses to stay uh, messed up, then there's correction and instruction and restoration that needs to take place in that situation. In other words, we don't give them a pass, all right? But what I'm saying to you is that their life is not over. And that's what the mercy and the grace of God is all about. So, you know, I wanted to spend that time, go back with me to Matthew 5, and I wanted to unravel that so that what Jesus taught is, is not applicable to the church, to the body of Christ. The law of love is what is applicable to the body of Christ. Jesus, again, is referring to Old Testament law that's being addressed to Jews. Okay, so quickly, I've got just a couple minutes left. Let's look at verse um, chapter 5 and verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Verse seven, 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more 
then these is from the evil one. So I want to just quickly summarize what Jesus is saying right here. All right. The bottom line is this, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, our lives ought to be lived out in such a way where your word is all it takes. And you should not have to swear by anything else to give credence to what your word is. Amen. All right. In other words, when you make a promise as a believer, as a, as a Christian, then you stand by what your word says. You fulfill what your word says, and therefore you don't have to add stuff like, I, I swear, and I'm just throwing this out. I would get in trouble as a kid if I said this, but I swear to God that that's what I'm going to do, okay? That's what mm. Jesus is saying, don't do, all right? Mm. So really, your word ought to be so sure and people are so sure that you will do what you say you will do. All you got to do is say yes or no. And that's it. But see, the problem is um, we flail around in the quality of our words and uh, our commitments and so forth and so on that, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we feel like we have to add this stuff. That's why, you know, hey, listen, we'll say stuff like this. I'm telling you, Jesus is my witness. That's the truth. <laughs> Why do you have to say that? Mm. Is your word so questionable that you have to now put the burden on Jesus to prove that your word is true? No, listen, folks, as believers, as Christians, <laughs> our conduct ought to be such and such of a standard that when we give our word, when we make a commitment, there is no doubt as to whether that word will be fulfilled or not. And that's what, that's all that Jesus is saying in those verses. Now, um, okay, I got one minute. Let me, let's go to verse 38, because I'm determined to get through 10 pages in spite of what Alan said. <laughs> verse, uh, verse 38 and you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who is Jesus talking to here? The Jews again? Somebody say it. The Jews? No, the disciples. He's training ah. his <laughs> disciples. He is training his disciples for ministry. All right, listen to me carefully. In ministry, and what he was training them to do, you never respond to evil. Amen. I'm going to say that again. In ministry. You never respond or retaliate, or let me use another word, take revenge for evil that's done to you. Okay. Now he is not implying in any way, shape or form. Let me broaden it out for just a second to believers that you put a sign on your back that says, kick me, please. Okay. Amen. You know, like a nerd used to wear on his back in school. All right. No, what he's saying to you, because the Old Testament law required, it was a commandment that there was equal justice for the crime. So in other words, and that's why he quoted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No matter if, if, if you, let's say somebody cut off your arm under the old Testament law, justice was commanded to, for you to take their arm as well, or an eye or a tooth or whatever the case was. It was a commandment. All right. It was not an option. It was a commandment under the new Testament. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is do as ministers do not operate that way. Okay. So he goes on, he says, uh, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. Also, 
He is not implying for people to let people abuse you. But as a minister, there are going to be times, now maybe not literally, but it's going to seem as though you are getting slapped in the face. Do not retaliate. Do not take revenge, he said. And um, and then lastly, let me just cover verse 41 and just explain it, okay? Verse 41, he says this, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too, okay? Now, let me tell you, there was a, a law in this day, the Roman Empire that occupied Israel at this time had a law that said this, if there was a Roman troop that was marching through your village or through your town and you passed by them, a Roman soldier could stop you and make you carry his load, his pack, his weaponry, everything, make you carry it for a mile for him. It was a law. It was a requirement. Now, it wasn't right and it wasn't fair, but it was Roman law at the time. And so what Jesus said is, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't ever do the minimum. Always go over and above what is expected. Again, keep in mind, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are training for the ministry. So in ministry, you never do the minimum of what's required. You always go over and above. You ever heard the phrase, you need to go the extra mile? This mm -hmm. That's where this came from, all right? Or that's where that came from is this verse right here. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too, all right? Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.